If you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 16, so we'll be reading Acts chapter 16, start at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And then we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged us to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent, you, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, condemned, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and then they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So for those of you who uh, rent homes or uh, own homes, have you ever felt like kind of, Entering into your home is a battlefield. What I mean is about three years ago, uh, the parsonage came open. The, the tenants who were there left. And at that point, me and Stephanie weren't planning on moving in. We uh, just kind of planned on going and, and fixing it up and then renting it out for the church. And I remember going in there and walking into that place after the tenant had left. It felt like entering into a battlefield. 
Uh, first of all, there was stuff everywhere, in the basement, in the attic, all throughout the house. Had to bring out garbage bag after garbage bag. So that was the first hurdle. Then the second hurdle was the smell. The whole house just reeked of cat pee. And we did everything that we could to get that smell out. It was, but it was kind of, it was like inside of the wood. The wood was kind of worn down and it was inside of the wood floors. And we used bleach and vinegar and baking soda and odor ban and anything that I could find that was an odor remover, I put it on there. Then we had to paint everything up. Then after that, the, the next hurdle was the fleas. I remember counting 12 fleas on one of my legs at one time. Then we had the asbestos issue. Then we had the the um, porch that was uh, rotting, that wasn't safe to go on. And so we had all of these hurdles, but each step that we took, each time we repaired something, it felt like we were kind of undoing the damage. We were undoing the damage that the tenant had left and that time had brought upon this house. And I think that's a picture of what's happening in this story in, the, in Philippi. Paul and his companions are going through Philippi, and he's undoing and conquering the work of the enemy. He's undoing the harm that the enemy has done. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, uh, ministry, Jesus describes his ministry by quoting Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus describes his ministry this way. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus declares that the essence of His ministry is liberating the captives, pronouncing freedom. And we see throughout His ministry that He does that. He goes throughout Israel healing the sick forgiving sins, casting out demons. And then he goes to the cross, dies on the cross, and then he rises again three days later, defeating sin and death once and for all, and offering forgiveness, peace, and freedom to all who would believe in him. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus' ministry doesn't end at his resurrection. It's continued through the work of his people. Remember way back when probably about a year ago now, when we started looking at the book of Acts, we talked about how Acts is kind of a continuation of the work of Jesus, that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' work is going forward through his, the, through his disciples. God's Spirit is moving through the church, and through the church, the church is undoing the work of the enemy. And we see that happening here in, the, in this book of um, in the city of Philippi, as Paul and his companions go through this city and proclaim the freedom that's offered in the gospel. And I see five different things that, that uh, Paul offers freedom from and that Jesus offers freedom from in this passage. The first thing that Jesus offers freedom from is from the freedom from the love of money. Now it says in the book of Phil in this book in Acts chapter 16 that Philippi was a leading city, that it was a Roman colony, a very important city. It was also a very wealthy city. It was, came from a very fertile region. There were uh, deposits of copper and silver and gold there. And so people were very well to do there. Now, it's not a bad thing to have wealth. There's nowhere in the scripture that condemns having wealth or having possessions. 
But where we get into trouble is if we have wealth and we close our heart to our neighbor, or if wealth becomes our God, where it's what controls us. But the truth is, the more we have, the more wealth, money, possessions tend to kind of take a hold on our heart. And, and the more we get, the more money has us, in a sense. There's a story that D. James Kennedy tells about a man named Howard Marshall, who was the chaplain of the Senate years ago. And uh, Marshall uh, was doing his duties, and uh, somebody came up to him and said, hey, I have this problem. So I used to make $20,000 a year, and I wanted to give 10% of that to tithe to the church, and so I, I would give $2,000 of that. And I had no trouble doing that. But now I make $500,000 a year, and 10% of $500,000 is $50,000. And I just can't see giving that much money. I just can't afford to give up that much money. Well, Marshall didn't give him any advice. He just said, well, I guess we have an issue. Let's, let's pray about it. Would you mind if I prayed for you? The man agreed, and then Dr. Marshall bowed his head, and he prayed this. He said, dear Lord, this man has a problem. And I pray that you will help him, Lord. Reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. It's true, right? The more that we have, oftentimes the more that those possessions have us. The more that we get, the more that we feel that we need. There's a few things interesting in the passage that we're looking at today. Now maybe I'm reading a little bit too much in this, but it seems like there's some spiritual apathy in the book of Philippi, or, or, or in the city of Philippi. We see that uh, as these disciples, Paul and his companions, go throughout the city, they're looking for a place of prayer. And they go to a place, and the only people they find there are some women. Now, that's maybe significant, maybe not, but it, it seems strange that only women are there praying, that there's only a small group of women. Also, it seems strange that in other cities that they go to, it often talks about, some, it will say, some people believed, or some people were open to the gospel, or in some places, many people were open to the gospel. But in the book of Philippi, we just have kind of a spattering of a few people here and there who are open and receptive to the gospel. And perhaps it's because of this wealth, this spiritual apathy that they have. The book of uh, in the cities of Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, it says the number of people uh, believed in the gospel. And so it seems pretty clear that their wealth was hindering them spiritually. And yet we're going to see that Paul comes in here with his companions and he's going to set the captives free. We see that God is going to open up Lydia's heart and do a miracle in her heart. It says in the Gospels that it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than the camel to go through the eye of a needle. And Jesus is going to do a miracle here in Lydia's heart. She's going to believe in the Gospel. Then she's going to use her resources to help this small, growing church. She's going to open her home to Paul and Silas and his companions. Later, at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that kind of the first church meeting happens in her home. And then we're going to see that a number of other people start to believe in Jesus so that when we get to the book of Philippians, Paul says this about the church at Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel 
from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we see that Jesus proclaims freedom to those who are in love with money, and he overcomes this love of money and creates a vibrant, growing community in Philippi. Now, when we read this passage and we, we think about this idea, maybe we think to ourselves, well, I don't have this problem. I don't make $500,000 a year, so I don't have to worry about the love of money. But the thing is, when we think about wealth and we think about what it means to be rich, comparatively, probably almost all of us in this room on the world scale would be considered rich. Being poor on the world scale is, hey, I haven't eaten since Thursday, and I'm not sure how I'm going to eat tonight. That's what poverty is from a worldly perspective. And each and every one of us, or, or most of us here, most of us listening, probably aren't having that kind of struggle. And so most of us here would probably be considered rich by worldly standards. And so we don't have to be making $500,000 per year to have money consume us. We could be making much less and allow money to consume our hearts. Even people who are poor can be obsessed with possessions. Sometimes it can take the form of anxiety, where we're constantly worried about our finances. We're constantly worried about our possessions and what we have. Now, of course, all of us can worry about those things from time to time. We worry if we lose our job and stuff like that. But I'm talking about a preoccupation where we're just obsessed with possessions, obsessed with stuff. It can happen whether we have a real lot of stuff or it can happen even if we only have a little bit of stuff. But Jesus frees us from that. The gospel frees us from that. We don't have to be consumed by that love of money because we know in Christ we have all riches that we need. We have everything that we need. That he's promised to feed the birds of the air and he's promised to take care of us. And so we can be freed from the love of money. The second thing he offers us, we see in this passage, is that Jesus offers us freedom from being possessed. In this passage, we see a slave girl who has a demon that's living inside of her, and this demon gives her extraordinary power. She's able to predict the future, able to tell people things about themselves that they, she otherwise wouldn't know. And as a result, she makes her master a lot of money. And it's an interesting story as this slave girl is following Paul around and just kind of uh, yelling out things to him. And finally he gets annoyed and tells the spirit to leave her. And what's remarkable about this is that her master is very angry about this. I mean, just think about that for a moment. This poor girl is possessed by a demon and she's given freedom and her master is angry because it's going to cost him something. I think that the sad reality is that our world is often like that. The sad reality is that the people in our society, the, the structures, the powers that be, don't really care about our spiritual welfare. Think about it this way. McDonald's doesn't care if we get to be 600 pounds if we go there and spend money every day. The liquor store doesn't care if we become alcoholics if we go there and buy alcohol each day. Television producers don't care if we become addicted to television, if we watch it for as long as they get the ratings. 
And so the structures, the powers that be, they don't care about our welfare. And sometimes when we even free ourselves or try to free ourselves from these things, there is the world trying to bring us back in trying to bring us back into bondage. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a sinister kind of thing, but it's just a function of the market that they're trying to get us to consume. And it doesn't matter what happens to us spiritually if we're possessed or uh, addicted in the process. As long as they're bringing in money, then it's okay. But the gospel sets us free. Jesus' desire is that we wouldn't be possessed by anything except for his Holy Spirit. We see here in this passage that simply by speaking the word, Jesus representative Paul allows this woman to be free. John chapter 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to destroy, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The good shepherd, Jesus' heart, is that captives would be set free. His heart is that we would have an abundant life. His heart is that nothing would possess us that would harm us. That we would live in his Holy Spirit because he knows that when we live in his Holy Spirit, we'll find life. And there's nothing that consumes us today. There's nothing that grips our heart that he can't free us from. So he offers us freedom from being possessed. Third thing that we see that Jesus offers is he offers freedom from fear. Now what would your first response be if the clothes were ripped off of your back, you're beaten brutally with rods, then thrown in the inner dark part of the prison and your hands and feet put in stocks? I don't know, I would start getting worried. I would start maybe even complaining. But what do Paul and Silas do? They have a worship service. They start praying. They start singing praises to God. Then second question, what would you do if while you were in prison, there was an earthquake and the doors of the prison are open, the bonds that are on your hands and feet are are torn apart, and you're able to walk away to freedom. If that was me, I would be out that door. Paul and Silas stay put because they know exactly that God has them exactly where God wants them to be. And they're not driven by fear. They're not driven by anxiety. They're driven by the will of God, and they know that God has them there for a particular purpose, and so they stay where they're at. Oswald Chambers once said this, it's the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in our hearts is when we do not get into panics. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. God doesn't want us to live in fear. He wants us to live in faith, and he can free us from living in fear. So Jesus offers us freedom from fear. Fourth thing Jesus offers us is freedom from guilt and shame. Now you think about this jailer, that it was the jailer's one job to make sure that Paul and Silas were secure. He was given an extra order, make sure they're safe, and so he put them where he thought they would be safe, in the inner part of the prison, in stocks, thinking there's no way that they could get loose. 
And yet there's this earthquake, a supernatural event by God. And the doors open, their bonds are loosed. And then the jailer wakes up, he's sleeping, probably shouldn't have been sleeping at that point. He wakes up and he's, he's just lost it. He's probably thinking of the punishment that's going to become him. Probably he'd be put to death for losing these prisoners. He thinks about the shame that he'd bring upon himself and his family, that he had this one job and yet he's failed. And so he resolves he's going to take his own life. He's about to fall on his sword and then Paul sees him and says, hold on, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer knows that something is different about Paul and Silas, that any other prisoner would be out the door as soon as the door is open, but they had stayed there. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul responds, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he goes on to believe in Jesus and he goes from a place of guilt and shame and despair to a place of rejoicing. With all the turmoil that's gone on in the last several months, I think that many, maybe here, maybe online, in our community, are dealing with fear, anxiety, shame. Maybe it's we've lost our job and we just feel like we can't contribute what we want to contribute. Maybe we have this existential despair where we feel like everything is bad and everything is going to get worse. And maybe we feel like we don't have hope. We don't have to live there. We don't have to be defined by shame, by guilt, by despair. Because we see this man who's at literally the end of his rope, the end of his life, about to kill himself. And he goes from that place one moment, and just a few minutes later, he is rejoicing, and his whole family believes in Jesus. And right now, he is in the presence of God. I mean, think about that transformation, how God freed him from that despair, and God can free us from despair as well. So Jesus offers us freedom from guilt and shame. final thing he offers us freedom from is he offers us freedom from exclusion. There are very different types of people who are encountered with the gospel in this passage. We have a religious woman. We have a young slave girl who's possessed by a demon spirit. And then we have a secular or Gentile soldier. One scholar named D.J. Williams says this. He argues that these three people represent the three different groups who were held in contempt by Jews. Women, slaves, and Gentiles. Suggesting that gender, ethnic, and social barriers have been done away with in the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. doesn't matter if you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, intellectual or a few fries short of a Happy Meal. It doesn't matter who you are. The gospel is for all of us. And that's hope because there's no exclusion. Anyone who comes to Christ in faith will be accepted and be part of the family of God. But it's also a reminder that we can't exclude those around us. That if God hasn't excluded us... And let's face it, all of us should be excluded from His grace because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. He hasn't excluded us. We can't exclude those around us. So the gospel offers people in this passage profound freedom. Freedom from the love of money, freedom from being possessed, freedom from fear, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from exclusion. 
So from these things, I have an encouragement for us today. Two encouragements. First, let's live like people who are free. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There's a man by the name of Mirhan Karimi Nasiri. And for 18 years, he was a man without of country. He was expelled from Iran, his home country, tried to go into the UK, but he was sent back. And so he ended up in France. He was issued papers from, the, from Belgium, but he lost those papers, apparently. And so he's in the, uh, Paris, France, and he literally can't go anywhere. He doesn't have a passport. He doesn't have papers to go anywhere. So he's just staying in this airport, and they allowed him to stay there for 18 years. So he just camped out on this bench in Terminal 1, and this was kind of the inspiration behind the movie. I think it was called The Terminal with uh, Tom Hanks years ago. Not exactly the same story, but it was the inspiration for it. And so he lives on this bench, you know, and people would bring him stuff. He would kind of clean up in the bathroom. He'd write in his journal and just kind of hung out there for 18 years. But after about 10 years, these human rights lawyers started to look into his case and tried to grant him some freedom to, to go to uh, some country to leave this airport. 1992, they, the French government ruled that he could stay in the airport, but he couldn't come into France. After that, uh, there was attempts that were made to have new documents issued from Belgium, but they said that he would have to go there and do it in person. Finally, in 1995, uh, the Belgian authorities granted him permission to travel to Belgium if he agreed to live there under the supervision of a social worker. But he refused. He refused because he said he wanted to enter the UK as originally intended. France and Belgium then offered Nasiri residency. But Nasiri refused to sign the papers as they listed him as being Iranian. And he said he wanted to be British. And did not show his preferred name, Sir Alfred Marin. His refusal to sign the documents was much to the frustration of his lawyer. It was said that when official, airport officials came and handed him papers that allowed him to leave the airport, he simply smiled, put them in his pocket, and then went on writing in his journal. And it turned out that he became afraid to leave that airport. It became what he knew. He beca it became what he was comfortable with. And his family said that he, they thought he was doing what he wanted to do. And so he ended up staying in that airport for 18 years. And even after 18 years, the only reason he left was because he had to go into the hospital. He grew comfortable in prison. He grew comfortable in bondage when there was so much more that was waiting for him. And I think that we can do the same thing. We can grow comfortable in our sin. We can grow comfortable in our bondage because sometimes it will shake us up. It will change us. It's hard and difficult to walk into freedom sometimes. But when we do, Jesus offers us life. Jesus offers us joy. Jesus offers us the ability to flourish under his reign, under his kingship, because he's the good shepherd, the one who longs for our souls to be blessed, who wants good things for us. And so that's the first encouragement. Let's live like people who are free. Let's not live in bondage to sin and addictions and fear and anxiety. Let's walk in the freedom that Jesus has bought for us. But the second encouragement is that we need to 
show love, that we need to offer freedom to those around us. See, we don't know the depth of the prisons that the people around us are in. We don't know what the person next to us at work is thinking. We don't know if the person next to us at work or the line in the grocery store maybe that very night is planning to take their lives. We don't know the depth of their bondage. There's a man from South India named Kumar. And uh, Kumar was a Christian and uh, he wanted to evangelize. And so he invited a number of people to the Billy Graham, they were having the Billy Graham crusade on TV. So he invited a number of friends or family members over, 13 people. And he was devastated when none of them came over to his house. So he's all distraught about that, praying to God, and he felt like God was telling him that he needed to invite his wife's sister and, uh, and her family. So he got on the phone, and it was actually really hard to get a hold of them because they didn't have a phone. And so he had to call a neighbor's house and then beg the neighbor to go over and get uh, his, uh, sister's, uh, his wife's sister, brother-in-law. And so he was able to get a hold of them finally. He got a hold of his brother-in-law, Satish. And he said, can you come here as soon as you can? We can watch this together. And Satish said, well, I, I mean, it cost a lot of money to take a bus ticket. It's a long way away. And Kumar said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of it. All you need to do, just make sure you get the money for the bus ticket. I'll reimburse you and pay for it. So Satish said, okay. So next morning, Satish and his family got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he didn't get to Kumar's house till 5 p.m. So they watched the Billy Graham crusade together after Kumar, after Kumar got up and gave his testimony. And he asked if anyone wanted to give their lives to Christ, put their faith in Christ. Satish seemed very moved, and Kumar wasn't sure what was happening, why he was so moved by, by his presentation, by his testimony. Satish went on to tell them that, that, that the, he had just lost his job at the tea factory that closed. They were about to repossess his house, and as a family, they had lost hope, and they had decided as a family that they were going to commit suicide together just a couple days, it was December 23rd, they were going to commit suicide on December 25th, Christmas Day. And yet now they had new hope. Now they had freedom. All of them gave their lives to Christ. They stayed there a number of days with Kumar, and they left ready to face the future with Christ. Now Kumar didn't know what the future held. He didn't know what was going on in Satish and his family's lives. But he knew he had to be obedient. He knew he had to do what God called him to do. And because of his obedience, this family was offered and partook of freedom. We need to do the same thing. We need to live in freedom. Live as people who have been bought with the blood of Christ. People who have been purchased by grace. And we need to offer that freedom to those around us because we don't know the bondage of the people around us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we don't have to live in bondage and slavery anymore, that you offer us freedom, that you are the good shepherd who loves us, who cares for us, who desires for us to be spiritually whole. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a light to those around us, that we would offer your freedom to those who are in bondage. Lord, we pray that we would be obedient to doing what you call us to do. And Lord, as we're obedient, Lord, we just pray that through your Holy Spirit that we'll be able to start to undo the work of the enemy, that your kingdom and your freedom would go forward in people's hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.